Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice San Diego. I'm joined, not as always, in fact, for the first time by the excellent producer of the show, the guy behind the guys and the gals, Nate John. Hello, Nate. Hi, Scott. This is weird, right? Yeah, I love it. I'm, I'm excited for you to get your voice, you to say, you know, go ahead, let the people have it. <laughs> I'm excited for that. And also in a co-hosting capacity for the first time, Lisa Alverstadt. Hello, Lisa. Thanks for having me on. I do think Nate's arrival here is more significant than mine. <laughs> well, no, I, we'll let the people decide. A little bit of a short staff week this week at Voice San Diego, but we are persevering. Next week, we've got a new manager starting. Excited to have Andrea Lopez Villafaña arrive. Uh, we've got we to gotta get her some lunch or something, right, Lisa? Yeah, uh, and coffee. Right. Got to get the coffee. Coming up on the show this week. There was some news about vaccinations, and we did some research of our own about vaccination rates for school employees in San Diego. They're probably going to have to be required to have a vaccination. So how many of them are vaccinated? Plus, the San Diego City Councilman wants to kill the people's ordinance. Well, the people might not like that, whom the people's (laughs) ordinance is named after, but it is a specific law in San Diego about trash, what it is exactly, what it means for people, and what they pay or don't pay to have trash picked up their homes. We're going to explain that and talk about the news or the the people who want to make it news. And a big update to a storyline you podcast listeners have followed with us for a while. Investigators from the district attorney's office raided the offices of the broker and landlord behind 101 Ash Street and the city's purchase of that office tower. We'll discuss what they are investigating and that case, and that's Lisa Halverstadt. She's going to help us explain that. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Scott, can I do the but first? Of course. But first! It's like how you always do it, and the audio, I yeah. always have to turn it down. Um, you don't want to sleep on PolitiFest this year. It's coming up in just a couple weeks. It starts Monday, October 18th. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Already? <laughs> Is that really happening? I know, right? <laughs> Weird. Lots yes. of work to do before then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, five nights, five panels. Unlike any PolitiFest ever before, uh, dedicated to law and justice, super cool theme. Scott, you've got a panel, right? Yeah, doing a, a debate for the three people who want to be sheriff. Mm-hmm. So you might have some questions for them. This kind of thing doesn't happen much. Uh, the sheriffs are often anointed in ways that make their elections easier. But this is an open seat. It's going to be a really uh, competitive one. We'll see how it goes. So, yes, send me your questions. I'm looking forward to it. I'd like to put in a plug, too. 
Can I put it? What's, what's your plug, Lisa? You got I'd plug? like to put in a plug for my session on Friday evening. I know many of our podcast listeners are very interested in police enforcement affecting homeless San Diegans. Yeah. And I have uh, secured a couple advocates um, who are pretty well versed in this issue and also a captain from the San Diego Police Department that's in charge yeah. of the police division that oversees all of the department's efforts associated with homelessness. So that's a big one for folks that are interested in that topic. Um, and as always, I love getting questions um, from listeners and readers. Um, and we'll try to make some time for your questions uh, also at the end of the panel. Yeah, Lisa, you yours is like the bookend for PolitiFest. That's the last panel of the, of the whole thing. Yep. Yes, I better uh. do good. <laughs> well, and of better. course, that week, we're trying to uh, coordinate it with some content for the site, some stories commentaries and other discussions so it should be a big week about law and justice looking forward to it uh, nate what's the website oh it's vosd.org slash politifest um and if you have questions for scott or, or lisa to hand over to their panelists you can just email us at info at vosd.org info at vosd.org So there's a pretty big development on the vaccine front. Just today, the uh, company Pfizer submitted an emergency use authorization request for the vaccine for kids age 5 to 11. That is what my family has decided, what my wife and I have decided is the is the passport to freedom is when that <laughs> happens. Uh, then Hopeful it's all done. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're living, everybody's doing stuff, but I, I, I wouldn't go play poker at a casino, for example. You know, that Have kind you of not thing. played I'm, I'm IRL still... poker for like a year and a half now? Yeah. Uh, February 2020 was the last uh, yeah, that was poker your thing. game I went to. Yeah. So that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, the numbers look really good. I don't know if you've seen them. We're coming down even more hospitalizations. Uh, ICU hospitalizations have gone down below 100 yeah. uh, for the first time in a couple of months. Uh, there's about 300 people still struggling with the virus in hospitals, but that's down quite a bit. And that that uh, parabola, as it was, uh, of the Delta variant spike is coming down swiftly on the other side. So that's good. But that news also comes after Governor Gavin Newsom announced just a few days ago that vaccines will be mandatory for students once they are fully authorized uh, by the FDA for use. So that's going to spare some school districts, I think, the the controversy of having to decide themselves whether they... Uh, Even though those. San Diego Unified just did it like a few days before Newsom did? Yeah. Like I they think had they're... the whole drama and the whole thing <laughs> and people showed up and they were mad at them and they just like took it, had a unanimous vote and then Newsom's like, yeah, me too. I think, Do you think I they think knew that, that was coming? No, I don't think they did because if they knew, they wouldn't have done it. They would have yeah, just let right? him do it. That yeah, would have saved and, them the headache. Yeah. It, and, and LA Unified too. Yeah, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, of course, Moderna and others haven't been approved. So one of the things is is that it seems obvious that if they aren't or or there's no specific policy in place yet for vaccination for school employees, it will get there. And we decided to survey, our Will Huntsbury surveyed 10 local school districts, heard back from six about their percentages of mm -hmm. vaccination. This was kind of fascinating. It seems like high numbers, except a lot of people aren't vaccinated. So Poway came in at 90%. But Lisa, did you see the one on San Marcos? 41%. 41%. That was surprising. Chula Vista, 61%. Those are thousands of people not vaccinated. If there's a requirement for them to get vaccinated, that's a lot of people. You know, these, these, these districts are dealing with a labor shortage already. So 
we'll see what happens when the deadlines actually hit. Should be interesting. Also, that city of San Diego deadline that we've been talking about as well, where the city of San Diego is going to be requiring vaccinations. There's a lot to yeah, be watching they... out for. What's that? What's that deadline, Lisa? I believe it was December 1st, but they I would want to double check that because they did just extend the deadline a bit um, mm-hmm. because they're doing labor negotiations, I believe. Um, but they aren't going to pull back on it, despite the police union really pushing that the city would renege this requirement that employees be vaccinated. So yeah, the police yes. officers are really the ones to watch here. Yeah, because there haven't been any similar things that I've seen related to like teachers unions or them pushing back against vaccination requirements, right? They've softly pushed back on it. I mean, the fact that there's no policy in place yet is an indication like uh, the, poli- the police has have power in local politics. But right. the teachers unions like kind of run school districts like they don't need to push back on school district policies. They often get to just set them in mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. in a, at a much earlier stage. And so the fact that there aren't those sort of hard deadlines in some of these school districts is an indication of where that power is coming. I don't think they're opposed to the vaccination mandate, but they are perhaps struggling to get a few people on board uh, at that at that, you know, 90 plus percent. So. Yeah. We'll see how that shakes out because they are also complaining about uh, labor shortages. Mm. Well, I'd like to circle back and say I did a little Google action here, you know, some reporting. And yeah. Yeah. indeed, the city of San Diego delay is or, or delay was to December 1st. So I was right. And labor right. negotiations oh, okay. are underway. Good job, Lisa. You're right about <laughs> a lot of things. And, and San Diego Unified, like obviously the largest in the region, second largest in the state, their vaccination rate for employees is 76 percent. Which mm-hmm. is pretty good because for the county, Scott, what is it like around 79, 80 percent right now for eligible residents? Yeah. And I think I think a lot of people get frustrated with that gap and the people who aren't vaccinated. On the other hand, like it's really hard to get 80 percent of people to do anything. Oh, yeah. In for any sure. situation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and so I think, you know, that's that's something to be proud of. Look, we. We answered that question. We did that survey of the school districts because that was a question that came in from one of our readers. And we're doing a lot more of that. And our daily morning report is answering their questions. So you can do your own. Go to VOSD.org slash answer, please. That's VOSD.org slash answer, please. And send in your question. And we will see if we can handle that on the morning report or on the podcast. We love your questions. Lisa, should we do this? We have never explained the people's ordinance on the never, podcast, ever. I don't think. I, I think maybe maybe like 10 years ago, because this thing, this is one of those things in San Diego politics comes up every like 10 years. I think the last time we discussed it was when the San Diego County Taxpayers Association, mm-hmm. which is known as a, a you know more center-right sort of policy think tank in San Diego, it's less active than it used to be, they kind of surprised us, oh, I want to say maybe six, seven years ago when they announced right. that, they, that they wanted to see the people's ordinance uh, be reformed. Now, let's explain as best we can what's going on here. Basically, uh, the, the city has a law that says if you can get your trash to the curb, the city has to pick it up. Now, in effect, that means that most, though not all, Homes, single family homes, get trash pickup without a special fee. And I like to say without a special fee because if you say free, 
they're like, well, we play, we play, we pay property taxes. That's not free. And that's how, you know, those kinds of things. Now, renters also pay property taxes in these apartment buildings in different ways, but let's set that aside. And it has the impact of, though, most, but not all, multifamily housing, apartments, and condos have to uh, pay a private hauler to come and get their trash. And so, in effect, a lot of poorer people pay an extra fee for trash collection. And in effect, a lot of wealthier people do not have to pay a special fee for trash collection. Now, across the county, a bunch of cities have a universal fee that people have to pay or, or they get to choose their haulers or whatever. But this is unique to San Diego. It has a lot of history. Yes, it's pretty much been a sacred cow. And as many of our commenters on my Q&A that we published on Monday with Sean Elo Rivera, uh, the city councilman who's now actually leading a discussion about this topic, um, it's it's definitely a hot topic. Just say that. Yeah. It's definitely a hot yeah. topic. Now, there's, there's, there's a couple of things to think about. So let's just do a quick history. It originated in the... In, uh, this kind of weird early 1900 scandal where there were there were people who were shipping trash up to like hog farms in LA or something right like it was it was like they were making money off of the trash trash used to be valuable like as a, as hog feed and stuff like that right oh they sold that yep. trash interesting VOSD fact Liam Dillon once recorded a San Diego explained uh, segment with NBC San Diego at a hog farm explaining yeah. <laughs> the people's ordinance. I'm really disappointed that I didn't get that assignment, Scott. Yeah, no, we can. <laughs> She's still sour about it, like years later. <laughs> they were very excited to get some snorting hogs on that one. No, so uh, it's a kind of complicated story. The city decided that if you can get your trash to the curb, then the city uh, would take it away for you. Uh, that has been amended a few times to clarify some points. Uh, in, in effect, it has left it so that if you can get your trash bins to the street, they have to come pick it up, mm -hmm. right? Lisa, there's some nuance there? Yes. Um, I believe it was changed in the 80s um, also to, to make it so new complexes that came up did in fact have to pay for their trash. But it's, right. it's been a winding road on this one. Lots of people suggesting it should go away, but it so far hasn't happened. And there's some, and again, there's some exceptions. There are some private streets in San Diego that are like, you know, wealthy enclaves or whatever. They do not get this service. It's only public streets that these go to. And then there are some mm -hmm. condos where people are able to get their trash out to the streets and that they do get uh, the, the, the no cost, no extra cost. A trash pickup. Now, this is an inequity. Like I said, like there are people often much poorer who have to pay more to have their trash taken. And, and so there's been various solutions proposed over the years. I remember former city attorney uh, Jan Goldsmith suggested, why don't we just cut off trash service to everybody? We may not even have to have a vote for that. And then everybody would have to pay the private haulers. So the, the conservatives have often lined, uh, lined up around the idea that private services could provide this, that everybody should maybe pay a fee to them. Mm -hmm. Now, the more liberal take on it, uh, often supported by the city uh, workers unions and others, is that everybody should pay a fee for trash collection and the city should run all of that 
with the uh, programs and city employment programs that are available for those workers. So uh, do you have an idea of, so you talked to Sean Elo Rivera, city councilman. Again, this comes up every 10 years or something. Somebody wants to take this on. He's the latest one. There's often a discussion about how hard it is because it would have to go to a vote of the people and people don't like paying new fees often. And there's a lot of them who vote who would probably vote no just on that. Do you have a sense of what he ideally would change it to? I think Lisa? he I th I think that he would like to simply create a fee where there isn't one now. Um and you know I would note that one thing that he thinks he has in his arsenal now is that he requested this summer an analysis by the city's independent budget analyst that looked at the cost associated with this. Mm -hmm. And so they're presenting that report at the Environment Committee, which he leads as we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. And that analysis found that this policy has cost the city more than $260 million over the last five fiscal years. Right. And that because of some other changes um, at the state level that have gone into effect that give the city some new requirements, it could cost $360 million for the next five fiscal years. So this is a very costly policy. Um, he also made the point that many San Diegans don't realize that they're not already paying for trash. Um, so many of us, including myself, come from another place where we paid for trash. Wait, so Lisa, you're you're saying that he's suggesting people might not know that they don't pay for trash right now? Yes, he brought up the point that many times people don't realize that San Diego, like pretty much every city, doesn't actually have a trash fee. Hmm. And he made the point, too, that, you know, as we're having these discussions, um, you know, about equity increasingly, um, and also as we're thinking about, you know, wanting to be, you know, more environmentally friendly, mm -hmm. um, the fact that the city doesn't charge a trash fee also means that it can't really track what's happening individually, um, also keeps the city from doing some extra things, like maybe having more regular recycling service. Um, a lot of folks only get recycling service every other week, um, or perhaps charging based on the amount of trash that you throw away. Or I don't know about you, but in a previous apartment complex, once somebody left out a couch and it sat there for weeks because it didn't belong to anybody that lived in the complex. Well, I see the craziest stuff in our dumpsters here. I believe it. Yeah. Well, the reason that we see those things in the city of San Diego is that pickup for those things is not free. And Sean Elo Rivera says, well, if we did charge for trash pickup, we mm -hmm. could make that free. So people would pick up couches and other things um, people or people would own up to it, you know, essentially. So he's saying, you know, that he thinks that there's a case to be made that by everybody paying, that's the equitable way to go about it. And the city will have money not only for trash related things, uh, environmentally friendly uh, practices, but also yeah. that it might have some money for some other sorts of things, which he didn't really want to get into. But, yeah. you know, I think it needs to be said that you know, other cities do uh, charge for this and they have extra money to work with for things like public safety, parks, libraries. San Diego doesn't have that money. And so a case has been made for a long time by lots of different people differently aligned in the city that that hampers the city 
in ways that other cities aren't challenged. Yeah, I think, and this gets back to, there's a lot of people who don't realize they, they, they don't pay a special fee because, again, they will say like, well, I do pay taxes. And I think there's a couple of things to address with that. Like, yes, their taxes do pay for that. And when we talk about the cost to the city, we are, we are saying that because they don't charge a special fee, they aren't getting X amount of money that other cities do collect. And so it's not that it's not as simple as saying like this, this, the way things are cost this much. It's that there, it's like an opportunity cost. It's like a thing that they don't collect money for and thus puts a strain on their other budget. Now, there'd be plenty of people in town that would say, that's what a, I would prioritize the city do is continue to pick up my trash for no special fee. The problem that this continually runs into is the inequity of it. The very basic fact that a that you know wealthy people wealthier people benefit from something that other people have to pay for. And 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 I think that there's been a lot of different solutions. I remember uh the uh, the econo- the economist Alan Jin suggested one time that you know you could even do it if you wanted to appease conservatives you could you could charge a smaller fee to everybody and kind of like make it revenue neutral or there's been that other proposal I talked about where they just cut off service to these places and then and then force everybody to hire a private hauler and i think that there's all these things but but at the heart of all of them is an acknowledgement by people who look at this that this is deeply inequitable mm-hmm. and needs to be addressed somehow and i guess the question is does it have the chance to get there there are some things that we've thought of as untouchable before that they've now put on the ballot and dealt with, like the height limit in Midway and along the coast. Mm-hmm. Is this something similar? I don't know. I did see the or the San Diego Union Tribune uh, editorialize yesterday that they believe now that for the first time they're saying that that needs to be addressed and needs to be scrapped and people need to pay fees all over uh, for these trash pickups. Uh, on the other hand, Lisa, as you see all the time, we have a cost of living crisis in San Diego. We have the highest water rates, the highest power rates, high fuel rates, high housing costs, storage of cars, of running cars, all these things we have to pay for often insurance is more. So adding another fee is yet another thing on that. Now, yeah, there's a Especially lot of Especially during the COVID times, right? There's a right. lot of concern. I think people are feeling additional sticker shock because- there's a lack of understanding of what our economy is going to be like in the next year. And there are a lot of people who are wealthy who live in single family homes, but there's a lot of people who aren't necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, doing really well who live in those single family homes who benefit from that. So what are they actually debating? Are they actually thinking of putting forward a ballot measure to change this from his environment committee? Also, really quickly, has it ever gotten to that stage before where they actually put up a ballot measure or language for it and it like gets in front of people? Just for those amendments that they've done to it over Mm -hmm. the years, but nothing to get rid of it at all. Okay. So my understanding of the process is this is going to start just with this discussion of this report that I talked about that really lays out the cost. Um, And Councilman Nilo Rivera was really careful to say he doesn't want to get out ahead of his council colleagues here. He wants to hear what they have to say in this discussion. Um, But if if there seems to be some buy-in to changing this, He would then have to take some sort of proposal to the city council's rules committee, which is the committee that's in charge of putting together ballot measures 
voting on those, weighing in, deciding which go forward. Um, so I think this could be the start to a process. I don't think that, you know, we should expect, you know, certainly not a ballot measure, uh, obviously, this year at this point, um, but maybe sometime next year. So that's interesting because there are already a bunch of different potential tax increases going forward. There's one going forward about uh, a parcel tax for parks and libraries. There's one going okay. forward or being discussed about a tax on properties to handle stormwater improvements. So when it rains, the, the gutters and, t- and tunnels and pipes and pumps that handle that runoff. And, so that part and of San protect- Diego's infrastructure is like really lacking right now, right? Yeah, it's, it's got a, it's a big problem on the city's uh, sort of long-term liabilities issue. Mm. And then there's also a potential tax being discussed for transit and for uh, buses and, and trolley lines and, and different um, light and heavy rail. So uh, putting this on would be a big deal and, and take some of the oxygen out of the room. Not sure, not sure if it would help either or hurt the other ones as well. Yeah, it should be interesting. I mean, I would emphasize that we have a new slate of folks on the city council, still relatively new. We have one Republican on the city council who's spoken out against this change already, uh, Chris Kate. Um, But there has been just increasing talk about tax and revenue measures. Um, And I would say we'll see because with each of those discussions, too, there's this uh, conversation playing out now about, okay, yes, we might think that it does make sense to increase a fee, but should we do it now? Yeah. Well, stay tuned. Uh, obviously, again, this is one of those things we've seen come up uh, in conversation quite often. It's often the go-to when people say, where do we get money? Or we don't have money to afford this. They often say like, well, we could do this and point to this uh, people's ordinance change. But changing it, requiring a vote could be a very significant undertaking and somebody would have to pay for that and we will see if anybody does. Podcast listeners, we've got you. We knew you wanted a podcast this week because there's been a big development and something we've followed with you for a long time now and it's about that building, 101 Ash Street. Again, just to catch you up, The city of San Diego has a lot of people who work for it who don't all work in city buildings. Sometimes they have to rent buildings. The city, several years ago, decided to buy, actually lease to own, one of the buildings across from City Hall called Civic Center Plaza, where the city attorney has her offices. It decided to lease to own that building, and uh, it decided to do the same thing for another tower nearby called 101 Ash Street. Now, this week, the broker who helped them decide to buy that building, helped the city decide to buy that building, Jason Hughes and Hughes Marino, and the developer that owned and sold the building to the city, or rented to own the building to the city, Sestera Development, had both of their offices, Hughes Marino and Sestera, raided by district attorney investigators in search of documents and information and who knows what else to execute a search warrant for what's going on. Now... This is a really interesting situation and a moment in this discussion. And that's because uh, several weeks ago, you, Lisa, revealed something really important. And that is that we had long thought that Jason Hughes from Hughes Marino 
was a volunteer advisor to the city and that he was providing this advice about where the city should house its workers for free because A, he's a good guy, and B, he wanted to make sure that the city didn't get a bad deal because that would mean that other clients of his got a bad deal. So he was performing this service. We later learned that he got paid $9 million, $9.4 million for his services in those two building lease-to-own deals. That was huge. And Bomb we show. talked about it. Yeah, we talked about it on this show at length. Recommend you go back to that show if you're interested. What we discovered a few weeks ago, which was wild, you discovered, Lisa, was that we couldn't figure out how and why he got that much money because it didn't seem to conform to how brokers get paid or any other sort of fee system we could find. And you discovered what? So while Hughes did not have an agreement with the city of San Diego, and we'll probably talk more about that later in the show, he did have a couple secret agreements, or at least secret to the city, apparently, um, with Sister and and to us. I have spent so much of my life looking into this, I was not aware of these agreements. So one of the agreements was a non-disclosure agreement. We all have heard more about those in recent years. The other extremely significant agreement was a services and fee agreement, which said that Hughes was on tap, if the deal went forward, to get 45% of Sestera's profits on the deal. But not only that, he was also on tap if the deal did not go forward, that he would have to pay 45% of Sestera's costs. That essentially makes him a partner in the deal. However, interestingly, in the agreement, it also makes the point that Hughes is, in fact, not a partner, which I think is also quite interesting. But basically what is significant about that in terms of thinking about, you know, whether this is a civil or criminal matter is that now we know that there was actually an agreement and purportedly like attorneys had to look at those things and say that they were okay. And so that does create a situation where, you know, potentially were there willful violations um, which is is necessary if we're looking at criminal charges. It's not necessarily enough with some of these uh, different types of allegations to say that somebody just committed them and therefore it's not like murder. Oh, you commit it, you know, regardless, you're guilty. If Even if you didn't mean to, it might be manslaughter. This is different. They have to show willful intent. Yeah, okay, let's, let's catch up a little bit. So just to be clear, Lisa, what... what you revealed was that this person who we thought was a volunteer for the city actually had a deal with the person who was trying to sell this building to the city that if the city bought the building, he would get 45% of the profits from that deal, Mm -hmm. which meant that every extra dollar the city paid for the building, he would get 40 cents of it profit-wise, of the profit. And if he didn't, he would have to pay a fee. So he was not only like interested in the deal going because of the 45% profit, he was interested because he would lose money if the city decided not to make this deal. Meanwhile, he's advising the city about whether they should make the deal. They made the deal, 
and he got $9.4 million total from both of those deals, right? Yep. He's being, the, the, the charge the city has now made against him is that by acting this way, he violated the state's conflict of interest law called section 1090, right? Yes. So basically, let's explain what 1090 is real quick. Yes, I feel like please, every time please, we mention it, we've got to give a primer. So 1090 essentially says that if you're a government official, you can't help to broker a deal or work on a deal that you have a financial interest in. And you might say, well, Hughes isn't a government official. Well, yeah. in this case, he was uh, an advisor to the mayor. Now, Hughes' attorney is arguing that because he was an informal advisor, this law doesn't apply to him. However, courts have found that this can apply to consultants and people that are, you know, advising the city and the city's acting on their suggestion. And certainly the city was relying on him. Just to be clear, if you work for a government and you help the government make a decision and you have a financial interest that you have not disclosed in that decision happening, you could be violating Section 1090, this law, the state law about conflicts of interest. Correct? Correct. And sometimes there and, can even be an issue and, if you disclose it. Right. And so what, what you're saying, they're saying in, in his defense is that, A, he wasn't actually a city uh, official. Correct. He was just a volunteer advisor. And the second thing they're saying is, oh, and he told them he would be looking to get money out of this deal. And those are his two main defenses to this. Now, again, that doesn't change the fact that what is not disputed in any way is that he made $9.4 million from a deal where he had a secret contract if the deal happened with the person trying to make the deal with the city and he was advising the city at the same time. That's not disputed at all, right? Nope. It's, It's documented. The question is whether that broke a specific state law. Correct? Correct. All right. So this is, this is what we knew starting this week. We got some tips that some actions were happening. What happened on Tuesday? Well, on Tuesday, we heard that, that there were police officers of some sort outside of both Sistera Development and Hughes Marino. So me being the reporter that I am, immediately got in my car, grabbed my notebook, drove, rushed to Sistera Development, and did, in fact, see that there were some district attorneys, investigators there, watched them walk in with a box Um, at one point. um, They were executing a search warrant. As I'm at Sistera Development, I hear, hey, they're at Hughes Marino, too. So I hurry downtown to Hughes Marino. I wasn't speeding, I promise. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds like you're speeding from the way you're explaining this, Lisa. Um, and then, so then I headed down to Hughes Marino, and in fact, yep, there were district attorneys investigators there too. So concurrent with all of this, uh, Andy Keats was helping me a little bit out with the emails to the district attorney's office, and we indeed confirmed that they were executing search warrants. Later, we confirmed that they were actually also executing a search warrant at Jason's home in Rancho Santa Fe, Hughes' home in Rancho mm-hmm. Santa Fe. Um, I think you just say the ranch. The ranch? Is that what they call it? I'm not too familiar, I'll admit. (laughs) There's no way people call it that. (laughs) Yeah, they do. Absolutely. Okay, so that that catches up. So the the question is this case, Lisa. So 
you talk to somebody who has experience with this kind of law and they told you like it could be a while before we know more. Yes. So these cases are really complicated. Um, it's not as simple as, you know, obviously murder cases can be complicated, but it's not as simple as a lot of other sorts of criminal cases that we think about. This person I spoke to who's a retired prosecutor who also spent years advising governments on 1090, he suggested it's probably weeks or months away in terms of whether we know if there's going to be a criminal case pursued. And he also just emphasized to me, these are tough cases. They're tough cases to pull together for investigators, but also tough to explain to juries. It's not simple. Mm. They should listen to this podcast. They should just play it for the jury. Well, so I, I... Deep City Hall insiders will remember the last prominent 1090 case a lot of us witnessed, which was the district attorney's prosecution of uh, five or six people who were involved in the city's pension scandal. So back in 2004 and five, uh, there was an investigation. So the city ended up giving out uh, pension benefit enhancements at the same time that it was trying to convince the city's pension board to lower the fees that the, the city would have to pay its pension system. So, you know, it would, it would raise the costs of the pension system at the same time that it was lowering the payments that the city had to make to it, which is a bad combo and never should happen and will never happen again, hopefully. But that deal was so controversial that they argued that some of the people who were involved in it who had their pension and compensation benefits enhanced by that deal that they were violating Section 1090 of the state uh, law and thus were prosecuted for that. But that ended up going all the way up to the Supreme Court and got thrown out. These are tough cases for a district attorney to nail. And that one was more complicated in a way, but they're going to have to prove, like you said, Lisa, that that this was a conflict that was intentionally put in motion, correct? That they knew yes. what they were doing was a conflict and and proceeded anyway. Yep. So uh, it'll be a fascinating uh, series of, of discussions after that. We will see what kind of information they got. Now, Lisa, it, it is a step to do this as well. Like both of these people, Hughes Marino and the company Sistera, their, their legal counsels told you that they were cooperating with investigators already. If that's the case, why would they need to go execute a search warrant, do you think? Well, I think that it's it's just common practice, uh, you know, that you don't want to just trust that you're getting all the information um, from these folks that you're investigating. And certainly just because they've potentially gotten documents from other sources, say from the city attorney's office or others, They want to make sure that they've got everything and that they're getting them in their own methods as well. Um, So it's it's quite a process. Um, I would also note, too, that, um, you know, in my own experience investigating this, I had been asking for months prior to last, you know, this past summer when we learned that Hughes and Sestera had these arrangements, right? Um, and, and now, obviously, more recently, we know that there were specific arrangements, not just payments, but literally agreements. Um, I had been asking them for a long time. Um, Sestera, did you pay this guy? Jason, did Sestera pay you? And I wasn't getting clear answers. And so, you know, I think a lot of this information has really well, come wait, out wait, one in of, recent history. What, what would they say? One of them was, 
some version of I have always complied with disclosure rules, right? Oh, I, I pulled this so I can read it, okay. Scott. So, so just to kind of get everybody on the same page here. So months ago, before this news broke over the summer, um, I had a curiosity about Jason Hughes' role with the 101 Ash deal and the prior deal, Civic Center Plaza, because it was clear he actually was very involved in Civic Center Plaza. But exactly what he did wasn't clear. And he had made this big deal around the time just before these deals came together that he was going to volunteer to help the city. So what was his role? So I spent literally months digging through old emails, documents, all sorts of things. And there were certainly some very interesting things that I found. Um, I would recommend going and taking a look at that January story I did. You know, I found some really interesting emails, for one, where Hughes was saying that he might like to be paid. Um, so I had yeah, a lot he of told, questions. He, he, he told one of the city officials, he said, this is going to be a hard deal to pull off. I want you to know that I'm going to seek compensation for it. Mm -hmm. So it was very curious. And I had questions, you know, to the city. Did he ever follow up and talk about that? They told because, again, no. the public record at the time was that this was a volunteer doing his best for the city out of, out of a sense of civil civic ob obligation. Mm -hmm. Was that the and letter so, from Bob Feldner that stated that? Like, he yes. is a volunteer. He will not get paid. Bob Feldner yes. signed. Yes, done. there is a letter from Bob Feldner. I, I would also like to stipulate just briefly here that mm. there is a press conference it, from 2013 with Bob Filner and Jason oh, yeah. Hughes, where mm -hmm. I asked the two of them about 101 Ash. Oh my God. Did, little did I know that that would become <laughs> such a huge part of my life and that I would spend so much time actually chasing stuff related to both of them and their, mm -hmm. you know, crazy allegations. Um, but back to the point, I had to throw that in. I just had to. So, yeah. um, so I'm, you know, really digging into all this stuff. I'm seeing these, Things that Hughes is saying over email, um, just lots of interesting dynamics here. And so I said to Jason Hughes, I sent him tons of questions. And I, you know, of course, I was asking, were you paid? Did Sestera pay you? Because if, you know, frankly, if, if you didn't get paid, just say it. Just mm -hmm. say it, you know. And he shared this statement with me, which I'll read. I have too much respect for the principles of the 101 Ash Street transaction to discuss their business dealings in the press, especially when those principles are involved in litigation. But you can be absolutely sure that I would not participate in any transaction without making the requisite disclosures. Any assertion to the contrary would be defamatory. Yeah, so, so that, that was a that little thread at the end there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and so then we find out that actually he knew at the time that, that he had already been part of a contract in which he was guaranteed 45% of the profits if these deals happened and 45% of the costs if they didn't. And all of that, that essentially made him the other side. It wasn't just that he got money from the other side of the deal. He, he was, was the other side. He was the other side of the deal. He wasn't just, he was as, as conflicted as possible about the deal. And, and I think what's, what's interesting about that then is in that same agreement that you found where he says that, he, you, that he, they're going to give him 45% of that, they also say in it, 
oh, but this doesn't make you a partner. <laughs> yep. That's like saying like, we're going to jump in the pool together, but that doesn't mean we're going to get wet. <laughs> like it's, it's it, and, and I, you know, okay, you might not be called a partner, but when you are guaranteed 45% of, a, of a, the profits of a deal, you are in effect a partner. And so this guy who's, who's run his entire business on the claim that he's the one who, who doesn't represent landlords, that he doesn't tolerate conflicts of interest, he in fact was working with the city and advising them on whether they should buy these buildings while he had an agreement that made him essentially a partner in the profits if the city decided to make those deals. It's just incredible when you step back and see it. Now, whether that has criminal implications for state law is going to be a whole another discussion. Well, and I think we should note, too, that what he was sort of implying there or referencing in the statement that he sent me um, was that there is a state law, in fact, that Jason Hughes himself pushed, which basically would say that a commercial broker, if you are representing one party in a deal and all of a sudden you want to represent another party in the deal, you have to get both of those parties to agree that that's cool and disclose that to them. Mm -hmm. So he's saying he disclosed it. Now, his attorney argues that by saying to the city in multiple different venues, these emails that, you know, we talked about, also a letter that his attorney has produced that said essentially, you know, that was signed by the city's top real estate official saying that, hey, it's cool for you to be paid in deals like this. Uh, also, the attorney has described uh, that, that former Mayor Kevin Faulkner was aware of this. So he's saying that it was disclosed that Jason Hughes wanted to be paid. When I talk to experts about this and I run all that by them, I would add, they say, well, wait a second. He said he wanted to be paid. But did he disclose the actual payment? Did or he, again, did he disclose the actual contract? Or the contract. He wasn't, it wasn't just that he got paid. He was also on the hook. He had agreed with them. And again, we, Andy and I made this point, like the city often keeps its real estate negotiations very confidential for the precise reason that it does not want the other side of the real estate deal to know what its negotiating position is. And in this case, the, they had the other side of the deal had a partner in the room <laughs> with well, them. And his Again, attorney not claims, a partner. Yeah. his attorney claims as well that actually the city wanted this non-disclosure agreement. Uh, and that okay. a former deputy chief operating officer who was later promoted to assistant chief operating officer, Ron Villa, actually pushed for it because he was concerned. Now, so of course pick up the yeah. phone and call Ron Via, And Ron told me, I wasn't suggesting anything like that. So there's a lot to be determined still here. I think it's going to continue to be a very interesting saga. Um, I think there will continue to be the drip drop of crazy stories in this 101 Ash saga. What does this mean for the city and how it deal how it does real estate in the future because this is like a huge blemish on the face of the city and how it manages its real estate what well, it, i think what do they again, take what, away from it for the future one thing i i think they're probably never going to do again is look if you're going to have a broker help you figure out where to put people 
and and maybe make money out of these deals, that needs to be an open competitive process mm. and it needs to be fully disclosed. If you're going to make a bunch of money from a deal that the city makes, you should have been the winner of, a, of an open bidding process and that should all be transparent about how that works. So I don't think they'll ever have a volunteer real estate <laughs> negotiator on their team. That will not be a thing that, that exists at city In that sort yeah. of capacity. But you have to remember... The, one of the deals that they're trying to unravel with their lawsuit about this conflict of interest is for the tower that currently houses all of the city attorneys and a bunch of other people. Civic Center Plaza, and, yeah. Yeah, and so are they, I think there's a lot of big questions about are they going to be able to renegotiate that deal? Are they going to settle that lawsuit? Or are they going to be evicted from that building if they stop paying rent or keep threatening not to pay rent? Now, they did pay their last rent. A lot of things like that continue to go on. But there's a lot of big questions about where city employees are going to work on into the future and what they're going to do with these buildings. I will note that they do have an agreement where they're paying something that is not rent under their current contract, but is the rent. So for now, it seems that the city is safe from eviction from Civic Center Plaza. Um, I would also note that for folks who are really interested in this, there was a recent city audit that came out that also looked at the city's real estate processes and, and raised a heck of a lot of concerns about the lack of transparency hmm. as the city looked at these deals and other deals, um, you know, the lack of due diligence associated with a lot of city transactions. And so the now current uh, Gloria administration has agreed to implement some changes, um, including actually creating a real punishment where if a city official doesn't give full disclosure about something, or is less than truthful about a transaction, it could come back to bite them. And yeah. yes, of course, they did mention, you know, the, these kind of arrangements that Jason Hughes had, where he was a volunteer, there wasn't a contract with the city, at least, obviously, there was a contract with Sestera, um, are just not, they're no go now, just not a thing that the city should be doing. And everyone <laughs> seems to agree on that. All right, see more from Lisa Halberstadt's coverage of the raid and, and everything at voicesandiego.org. Real quick, before you go, you may have noticed in this feed we dropped something on Tuesday. That was the first episode of the San Diego 101 podcast. We adapted our popular video series by the same name into a podcast. We've got a great season coming up of all new stories made to teach you how the region works. We believe that uh, learning and knowing how to how things work in the city of San Diego, in the county of San Diego, in the region, the water districts, all these things uh, makes you a better citizen, makes you able to make change. We made it to give people a foundation of knowledge so that they can plug into local news and politics. And even if you've been following us and local affairs for a long time, we know you'll like it and you'll learn some stuff. If you haven't heard it, I highly recommend it. It's in your feed right now. We'll be dropping a new episode here every two weeks. And if you've got a normal friend who doesn't really follow this stuff and you've been trying to explain local politics to them or whatever, this is for them. Send them this podcast. The link is vosd.org slash 101 podcast. That's vosd.org slash 101 podcast. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. Keep up with all of our stories and takes on local news with The Morning Report. Get it and all of our newsletters at vosd.org slash morning. I'm Scott Lewis, Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Nate John is our digital manager and producer for this show. Lisa Howerstad is our intrepid reporter. And more producing help was done this week and offered 
by Adriana Heldes and Megan Wood. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week.